Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? A book club hosted by me, Geordie Bailey. And by me, his following shadow, Duncan Nickel. Welcome to back to the show, Duncan. It feels like it's been ages since the last one. Uh, two weeks is normal, but no, I know what you mean, mate. I feel like so much has gone on uh, since we last kind of recorded an episode. I've mm-hmm. consumed so many books. Yeah, oh, me God. too, actually. I, I sort of had a bit of a reading gap in between our last couple of books because I was so focused on the podcast. But in the last week, um, I've been reading pretty voraciously. What have you been covering? Oh, God, so let me see. So actually what I've done, uh, because of Wizard of Versus, a bit on the shorter side, I used the extra mm. time and I actually picked up Narnia again. So you might know the start of this year, I'd never read any Narnia books, apart from the very first one, which is Nephew. Yeah. And I've been setting about correcting that. So I read both Prince Caspian and Voyage of the Dawn Treader in these uh, past two weeks, along with... Excellent. I don't know how to do chapters, but I'll do it in volumes. Because I've read about three volumes of Berserk. Uh, oh, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, non-binary fellows, you can thank me for that one. I have been drug-pushing Berserk on Duncan. Yeah, it it's an interesting story. I have lots of thoughts. <laughs> I don't think it would be for everyone, but it's very good at what it's doing. What yeah, it's doing is so dope. far is really disturbing and cool, but also... Wow. Uh, Disturbing, cool, and wow is a perfect takeaway from Berserk. Uh, that's extremely exciting. We will break away, I think, from our, our novel pattern so far to talk about Berserk at some point in the future. I do think that's probably far far away from us right now, but um, uh, I'm terribly excited to do it because I, I could talk about Berserk all the live long day. But, Geordie... So I've read some classics of children's literature and what's widely considered one of the greatest graphical, uh, I'm going to call graphic novel, mangas um, of all mm-hmm. time. What have you been reading to match that? I'm going to jump in right here, Duncan, and say that um, uh, it, it, it strikes me that I've go- I'm going through my mental list of the Narnia books you've read. Um, A Horse and His Boy, uh, The Silver Chair... Uh, the, the Magician's Nephew. The only one you haven't mentioned, aside from The Last Battle, which you read when you were a kid, it seems like you haven't read A Lion, Witch, in a Wardrobe yet. Do, do you need to read them in order? I felt the movie filled me in pretty well. Duncan, I don't know why. You, <laughs> I, so you literally haven't read A Lion, Witch, in a Wardrobe? I, when I jumped back in, for some reason, because I'd already knew the story of Magician's Nephew, and... Mm-hmm. Oh, because I read it. And I'd seen sure. like, the wardrobe, I saw the BBC version, I'd seen the film. I actually just for some reason really wanted to jump in with a horse and his boy. For some reason that I was mean, just the one calling enough, me. I mean, that's fair enough, but Prince Caspian is, is the direct sequel. No, I've read Prince Caspian, sorry if that wasn't clear. I have read No, Prince that Caspian. was quite clear. So my question was, why didn't you read Prince Caspian and Voyage of a Dawn Treader? Which is part of basically a trilogy with a Lion, Witch and a Wardrobe. Because I didn't read Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe... And read everything else. Okay. Basically, because the set that I have has them all in chronological order and are numbered one through seven. So that yep. wasn't evident to me. So Horse and His Boy was numbered three. And thus, when I picked up Horse and His Boy, I thought it was all a linear progression, okay? And I've discovered now that Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, Prince Caspian and Dawn Treader is the trilogy. 
But that was not obvious from how it was marketed to me. And that is my only excuse. Um, but it does seem weird. Yeah, I should have thought about that because they made that into the film trilogy and it never yes, occurred exactly. to me. I, th- I thought they just thought Horse and His Boy was like not interesting enough. But enough about me and criticising my reading. Geordie, tell the people what you've been reading. So, to my shame, in the past two weeks... I've been reading a lot of Star Wars comics. <laughs> now, for everyone's reference, our last episode was on Revenge of the Sith. It and was. I particularly tried to get Geordie on the Star Wars EU boat. I think we're yeah. about to hear is the success of my attempt. Yeah, he away. fucking did it. He lured me to the dark side. Um, in fact, Duncan, whilst I talk about Star Wars comics, I'd like you to think of a Sith name for me. What is, what is now that you've... Now that you're the master and I am the apprentice, as I'm sure we all anticipated, um, you're going to have to name me. Uh, so my journey to um, Star Wars comic books didn't start that well. I originally began with like a compilation of prequel comics, each focused on a specific character. So one on Darth Maul, one on Obi-Wan, one on Qui-Gon Jinn, one on Anakin. And it was kind of a hit or miss. The whole point of this comic was obviously like, hey, you should try out some of these Star Wars comics, see which character you like. But it was on a whole pretty disappointing. I didn't feel like they added a lot of complexity to the characters, um, which they're obviously supposed to do. They're supposed to be revisionist history. But but well, like characters like Qui-Gon Jinn still weren't compelling or interesting to me. I actually enjoyed the Anakin story a lot. I felt like it was well-drawn. Um, but the Darth Maul story was a real disappointment because a complete blank slate of a character. There's so much you can do to approve upon him by giving him even the slightest bit of dialogue or complexity. But the action was really disappointing. Like, um, you expect some pretty high-octane action when that's kind of the whole reason to introduce their character in the first place. But it just did not rise up to meet my standards of comic book action because I've read too much Berserk and most Western comic books the action is just so fucking boring. Wow, these are some very harsh words coming here. But yeah, to be clear, you, but did, you did get into them. Oh, I did get into them. I did because then I tried out the 2017 Darth Vader run and it kind of resolved all the issues I had. It did add more depth to Darth Vader's fall to the dark side. Like, like not just the fall, he's already fallen, but the descent, the way in which it, he can never go back. I mean, he did, but you can see why it was very hard for him to go back. Um, the action was excellent too. Lots of set pieces, lots of interaction with different parts of um, of the prequel world. There's this is love. This is excellent bit where um. He has this confrontation with, like, of all characters to choose from. The librarian from the Jedi Archives. She's an important character in one of the arcs. And it has a really interesting conclusion where his confrontation is with a character who is no match for him physically or has nowhere near the same powers of a force. But she's kind of his greatest adversary because she compels him to make a really difficult choice for a Dark Lord of the Sith. Anyway, so that changed my perspective entirely, and after that, it sort of opened up my heart, and um, 
I was able to read all sorts of Star Wars, Star Wars comic books and enjoy them. I'm so I read glad. like the um, yeah the twenty. I started reading the twenty fifteen Star Wars run. I've only done a little bit of that, but I've already started enjoying it quite a bit. See, see, people, he has fallen to the dark side, and with that, he needs yeah. a dark Mind side. Mind you, Duncan. Here. So, for for the for the audience at home, Duncan and I, um, we record this remotely. We haven't until last week, last Saturday. We hadn't seen each other in person in four years. Oh god, this pandemic's been harsh. That's true, but it's been, of course, even longer than that because. When I moved, when I left the country, I moved to America. Duncan and I hung out one last time, and we had a hug, and then we didn't see each other until last week. We've hung out online, but uh, it's been a long-ass time. And whilst we were hanging out together, you were like, if you're not engaging with, like, the old prequels characters, maybe you should try and find some characters who you've never seen before. Try out the, the, like, Knights of the Old Republic. So I did, and it was bad. It was extremely oh. bad. Oh, that hurt. Okay, but yeah, these I top. I, I didn't. I did not see any characters in that story, Duncan. You sure you're reading the right comic? I, it can get very confusing with all the different names. Knights, right? Not Old Republic. Knights of Old Republic. I don't know, Duncan. It's all very. It, like you said, it's all very confusing. There was a Wookiee with a gun. He blew someone up. I think he was an. I think he was an evil guy. <laughs> There was a fight in Coruscant. Yeah. Yeah, we've, you've read the wrong series. But no worries. Oh, well. Um, I'm going to give you a Dark Lord name. Duncan, now. what's my Dark Side name? Well, because my Dark Side names, they're like a riff on like a bad word. And I was looking at one particular one, you know, like Darth Sidious, Darth Tyrannus. Um, and then I was thinking if anyone mm-hmm. had done one for Malice. Darth Tax Evasion. And then, because there is, there is actually a Darth Malik and a Darth Malgus. But there's no straight-up Darth Malice, um. so you can be basic, and you are now Darth Malice. Enjoy. Thanks, Duncan, for making me basic. In memory of your initial feeling. And to be fair, actually, I really since I declared you the, the, the master and I the apprentice, I should think of the dark side name for you. But maybe we'll do that on another episode. Yeah, for now, we're talking about the actual book we read for Book Club this week. And the one you all clicked yeah. on this episode I will say about. that I also read... Uh, I did also read an actual book, that being um, one of the best sci-fi novels of all time, but I guess Not we should only talk about the Star Wars comics I read. Not the place for it, Geordie. Now the place for Wizard of Ursae. I read the Dark Forest! No one cares! A Wizard of Ursae. Okay. Ursula K. Le Guin. Wonderful fancy literature. Won the jewels of the 60s. Yes. Tell the audience about it, Geordie. This was your pick. I've read this book before. I believe you've read this book before. Why did mm-hmm. we read this book, Geordie? Yes. I, I read this book multiple times. Um, I've read this one. This might be my fourth read-through of the book. Maybe my third. Um, I've also read the sequel, The Tombs of Atuan, which is a, an extremely good book as, it, uh, as well. An interesting continuation of a story. Not, It does not manifest in the way you might expect. That's interesting. I have not read any of the sequels. I think that, mm-hmm. that is a, a key point here. So I've read A Wizardversity twice now, but that is it. I have no wider... Uh, I've not even seen the movie. I have no wider Earthsea context. Yes. Um, movies. There's also a, a, a Ghibli one. Ursula, uh, Ursula Gwynn hates both. <laughs> 
or hated. She left us quite fairly recently. The reason why I picked a Wizard of Earth seat is a follow-up to Revenge of the Sith, and you even made fun of me for it last week, Duncan, is that these are both about characters grappling with their dark side. But whilst the Star Wars is about, you know, um, a fall from grace, um, a Wizard of Earth sea is a buildings roman, much like the go-between or a catcher in the rye. It's about learning to understand yourself. It's about growing up. I know I'm making it worse by saying this, but I cannot believe that in our fabulous A Wizard of Earth sea, a, a, liter- this is fantasy literature, We've managed to spend nearly 10 minutes talking about Star Wars. Um, I'm just a bit shocked at that. But <laughs> yes, with Aversi, it is. It is a wonderful coming-of-age story from uh, the character Ged. It's a very short book, you know, This, but dense. I think that's a key thing. You know, we might say, you know, it's short, you know, it's not that long. But that's yeah. not to talk about the density or the maturity. And I think that's a key point. This deals with themes that are actually incredibly... They're not actually super kind of stereotypical in fantasy literature. It's not about overcoming that external darkness. It's a very introspective. It's just about mm-hmm. Ged on his own. While the world building is excellent, you get a sense that Earthsea is this huge place with lots of moving paths. There's no real politicking. There's no armies. Mm-hmm. Venice, there's no real fighting. Um, when I first read this book, in my memory, I thought Ged fought one man once in a scene when he, uh, at his shadow which is the entity that kind of hunts him throughout the novel. Yes. And he eventually hunts himself, possesses this bloke. I thought they right. had a fight, but they don't. He runs away. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And even and the act of violence that he takes against him by hitting him with his stick is a sign of impotence. The whole point was, in that scene, uh, the shadow reveals that it knows Ged's name, and therefore he can't use his power on it. So him using violence by hitting him with his wizard staff isn't just a sign of his own impotence. It disempowers him because it destroys his staff. So in this book, textually, like conceding to violence is the ultimate sign of failure and weakness. I think what carries it so strongly is that no point does get say that in words. No point is Ged like, I'm a peaceful man, I shall not harm. And there's no character who even does that the standard. There's no character that tells Ged, like, violence is not the answer, in such words. It's all done through Ged being in these situations, learning, and then not being violent going forwards. That said, he does fight five dragons, but that's such a minor paragraph. It's almost like a footnote in, mm-hmm. in the story. But, so I want to roll back and click on to something you said there. He mentioned he says Sked's name. And this yeah. is an interesting fact about how magic works. Now, I've seen this motif, um, the notion of true names having power. And I've seen it quite Wait, a few Where did you stories. first encounter this in oh. fiction? Okay, so I first encountered this in fiction in Patrick Rufus's King Killer Chronicles. Okay. And gotcha. I'm well aware that's not the origin, obviously, because this came out beforehand. I don't know mm. much about the origin. I don't know if this comes from a particular folklore. Or if this is the origin. Uh, Jordi, do you have any insight on that? I can provide some insight into that. And unless I'm wrong, and it goes back even further, this sort of is really intrinsic part of fairy lore. The idea that fairies have true names, and that by knowing that name, you have power over someone. The most 
obvious example of this, and is very, very often over overlooked, is Rumpelstiltskin. Rumpelstiltskin is a fairy's true name, and when she, when the, the maiden learns Rumpelstiltskin's name, she's able to use it to disregard their bargain, and then he splits himself in half or something. You, you've actually blown my mind there, like, live, dream recording... Because you're right. I, I was like, oh yeah, I, I have no, no other examples. And you literally name a fairy tale that I must have learnt at like two to three years old. I'm like... Exactly. Yeah, that's the exact principle. That's exactly what's going on. I, I do know that it shows up in other mythologies, but for the life of me, I can't think of any right now. Oh, yes, I do. I do. Yeah. Um, This this is much older than fairy lore. This is This is like Stone Age storytelling. It's it's from Egyptian mythology, and it's Ra's true name. Okay. All right. Do you know this story, Duncan? Uh, no, you're well out of my depth here. So please. Okay. Well, I- I'm gonna tell the story, even though it might take a little bit of time. I feel like it is worth going into because this again, this has just come flying back to me. Hey, mate. This is just a fantasy. This is the this is the wonderful pathways how fantasy stories of old build and build. And, like, Wizard Versi, mm. I think, is a really major step. But it's still standing on the shoulder of its own giant. So, what is Ra? Yeah. We are, we are, this is, we're adding this to the fantasy flow chart. We have big, strong men with sword. We have that in one column. The Conan to Geralt uh, pipeline. Um, going back to the Bible. Here, we are um, drawing a new line. The true name uh, line. And it comes from... The story of Isis and Ra's true name. So, so Ra is, of course, uh, the chief of the Egyptian gods. He is the first and most powerful. And the core of his magic is his true name. As the prime god, it holds immense power. And all things he can do comes from his name. Now, the goddess Isis begins her story as a goddess of childbirth. She ends it as the the goddess of magic itself. She is ambitious. To become parallel in power to Ra, she came up with a scheme. She, one day, when when they were flying across the sky in Ra's barge, you know, the sun is beating down, I guess beating up, they're probably sitting on top of it. Um, Ra wipes sweat from his brow, and as he flicks it away, Isis collects that sweat. She takes the sweat, she moulds it with clay, and with that clay, she creates a serpent. She brings the serpent to life, and then, the next day, she goes back to the barge, and she releases it. And it bites Ra on the heel. And and Ra collapses in pain. And all the gods gather around in shock and horror. That chief god just got bitten by a snake. And if you don't know, and all fans of Conan should know, um, snakes in Egyptian mythology are bad news. Anything that's bad is a snake, aside from Ra. I mean, aside from Set. He's a jackal. He's also a jerk. But they, they, they start pouring on all sorts of different healing magics. And of course, the greatest healer is Isis. And she casts all her most powerful spells, earnestly trying to heal the snake bite. But of course, this snake came from Ra himself. It was made from his sweat. 
So she says, Ra, this is beyond all of my magics. There's only one thing I can do to heal you. I need to know your true name. So he hands over, he whispers it in her ear. And by knowing his, her, his name, she holds the most powerful magical word in all of, all of the cosmos. She uses it to heal Ra. And from that moment on, she has knowledge that makes her more powerful than any other god aside from Ra. Wow. <clears throat> wow. That... That is interesting, not only in its own context, but how it directly, I can draw then a line from that story, straight all the way down to what we have here in the Wizard of oh, that's I don't, because there must be, I'd love to know how these sort of, this myths, these myths sort of develop. Because mm-hmm. you look at that line and you look at Rumpelstiltskin and I can't see, it's not as simple as going, oh yes, the story of Ra. Well, clearly that inspired yeah. the people who wrote Rumpelstiltskin. This, that's that's some Jungian shit right there, Duncan. That's the collective unconscious. Nice, good. Mm. But yeah, I would say argue that it probably does draw a bit more from the, the fairy lore because it is more that knowing someone's true name gives you power over them, but also knowing the name of objects and trees lets you understand them very greatly. And, and this is where the sort of Taoist aspect of the book really comes into it. I think it was the verse is a very deliberate act by Ursula K. Le Guin to oppose the landscape of fantasy at the time. You know, A Lord of the Rings had come out six, five, seven years beforehand, right? I think it was a bit earlier than that. I think The Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship came out in the mid-50s. This is the... Okay, so more like 10 or 12 years. More like 10 or 12 years, yes. Um, But we're still a way out from the real big fantasies. Like, the big fantasies, when you think about it, Magician, Dark Tower, those don't come along until the 80s. um, The early 80s. So we're still in this weird sort of middleist transition ground. Like, D&D's not even come into play yet, you know, in the 70s. So, I, I mean, I looked at this. I looked up what else was released in 68. And the other releases that year, these, bear in mind, lots was released that year. Um, but the only real major releases, I was like, well, Last Unicorn, classic book. But then the rest, well, Cone of the Isle, uh, a Fafnir and the Grey Mouser book came out. I think a, a mm-hmm. Thongor book was released. They're still very much traditional masculine sword and sorcery fantasy books. So that's what really kind of shows then, like I said, that's yet another aspect that this book was being different. And in being different, mm. it's kept itself more... I say it's kept itself more modern. It's almost so... It was in so pre- some ways, uh, she's still ahead of the curve. We're still yeah. playing catch-up with Ursula K. Le Guin writing in the 60s. The fact that the characters are so diverse that like she makes a deliberate choice and to be very clear about the fact that almost all the characters we meet have reddish-brown skin, and one of the few times that this is contradicted is when a character has even darker skin. The only light-toned uh, skin people we meet are expressly made the barbarians at the very yep, beginning exactly. of the story. She's flipping things on their head on purpose. So good. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to go in awe now, because I'm like, oh yeah, 
you know, she looks at race and subverts it. She looks at the violence and so subverts it. Mm. She looks at how you tell these stories of coming of age and like dealing with the the dark side. You, you know, Ged does not defeat his shadow in this. He embraces yeah, he it. He embraces it. He names it and he names it what it is, which is just the dark side of himself. That said, and and, as I, and 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 the reason why I stumbled onto this course of discussion is, I'm, I want to talk about how, in contravention of the established ideas of Western fantasy, like you said, Lord of the Rings has come out. It hasn't quite gained the same degree of popularity yet at this point. Uh, the Last Unicorn comes out the same year. Obviously, that is like Central European fantasy. A lot of even though a lot of the names of things are quite Western. Just the conventions of wizards and their staves, uh, the presence of um, of dragons, specifically dragons that do have wings and are greedy and obviously inspired by Fafnir and things like that. The, the themes and the way in which the wizards come to understand the world is deeply Taoist. I have a quote. In that moment, Ged understood the singing of the bird and the language of the water falling in the basin of the fountain and the shape of the clouds and the beginning and end of the wind that stirred the leaves. It seems to him that he himself was a word spoken by the sunlight. It is a beautiful piece, a beautiful imagery. And it, for me, it really doesn't bring home the idea that this is the story. Like you see Ged now and he's 19th in the story. And there's no mm. doubt in my mind that, like, yes, this is the type of human being that would grow up to be the wise sage. It, absolutely. You know, this is this man. Even at the moment in the story where he is at his weakest and his most frail, you know, he still acts with a great deal of wisdom in every other way except the own regard for his own life. My favourite bit of his wisdom, which when I was reading this, when I first read this, um, I was about 20 uh, years old and I was at university and one of his biggest points of wisdom is that is when he kind of lets go of his sort of his hubris and his pride and he asks for help and he does it multiple times throughout the story and the, he has this notion when he goes back to his old master and goes please mm. I've done wrong I need your advice I need to learn from you um, it's a great exactly. bit also when he first goes to wizarding school and I like this because he passes this test but he doesn't learn the lesson and that's how do you get in the door to wizarding school? Mm-hmm. And you have to ask. And it's the Absolutely. lesson that he then gets taught again when he leaves wizarding school is he has mm-hmm. to know the name of the doorkeeper. And he's there like, well, what could I do? I can't try to trick it from him. I can't force him. And then he suddenly realizes, oh, I've just got to ask him. Exactly. It's all about humility. Like, um, the first thing he has to do is after building himself up to be a great wizard and knowing that he could be a great wizard, uh, he has to um, to make himself small. And it, it's really interesting that, that, you know, that's sort of his instinctive reaction to a traumatizing thing happening. The summoning of the shadow, the death of the archmage being his responsibility. He lives with this palpable shame. And on one hand, that's it's good because he should be ashamed. That's that is, you know, shame. It would be worse if he felt no shame where he has to come to isn't returning to his previous state of arrogance. He has to live with what he's done, but also learn how to move on with his life, acknowledging the dark parts of himself. And that metaphor is then carried into the actual plot where 
the element of if yes. he tries to run from the dark parts of himself or he tries to fight yes. against it, it will weaken him. It will win. The only exactly. way he can conquer it is to chase it, is to go after it, is to be the kind of active party. And I think mm. this is such a wonderful... Maybe I'm reading too much. Maybe it's I'm it's a fantastic turning point in the story where it goes from him running to him chasing. It, it's impossible to describe. I've read this book four times, I think. And every time that moment happens where he goes to confront the shadow and the shadow turns and runs, I don't even know how to describe the feeling of contemplation and satisfaction I get from that moment. It's just magical. So, we've said a lot of good things, Geordie, about this book. But I do have some few little quibbles I think I want to bring out now. Are you prepared for that? I'm ready. I might... I might... Okay. I might stand up and fight, but we'll see. Now, I am under no delusions that this isn't a deliberate choice by the author. And I do not want to pretend that I know better than Ursula K. Le Guin in telling the story she wants to tell. Mm-hmm. All I can say is there are a few things in here that, if we're a bit different, may have improved my personal experience of this story. Oh, that's nicely political. Well said, Duncan. Um, and that is, through this story, like we said, it's told very much in the third person. It is that bit more detached. You're being told the story by, like, a storyteller. That's what it feels. Yeah. This is the legend of Ged. Let me tell you. And mm. in that way, we've you've got elements such as conversations would be sort of summarised. Um, it won't be like, you know, you won't get the whole play-by-play. You'll just get, and then Orgion told Ged thus and thus. Yeah, and, and that's, and that's not your criticism, is Because that's, I think we no. both agree, that's actually really well written. Oh, it's wonderful. It's what I always feel we build towards in D&D all the time. We'll RP for ages, and eventually I'll just go, right, I want this. Geordie, do the people, does the old lady give me this? Instead of us doing that, you do the old lady <laughs> voice, and I do the Dragonborn voice. Ho, 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 ho. I just go, right, the Dragonborn just wants to know this. Does the old lady know it? Yes. Will she tell me? Yes. Cool. Moving on. And it's great. And it keeps the plot up. And it keeps the, sorry, the plot up. It keeps the pace going, the plot moving. But at some point, I think that little bit of uh, detachment is a little bit too much. And there's one scene in particular where I would have liked it if Le Guin, who I know can do this, because I've read Left Hand of Darkness, she knows how to get the emotions going. Sure. Could have just leaned a little bit more on the plot, giving us a bit more time. And that is the death. Of Otak. Yeah, the Otak. Oh, Otak. Otak, the Otak, I'm going to call them Otak, is Ged's little furry friend, the travelling companion, the cute animal, and it tragically dies in this book. Spoiler, Mm. this is Book Club. Please read the book before Book Club, or if you turn up afterwards, I appreciate that maybe you don't mind the spoilers. Otak dies, and Le Guin gives it a paragraph, and then Ged's off on his adventures again. Well, no, he's being chased. It's, It's an action scene. But it's just that one moment where I'm like, oh, if you could just have leaned into the moment, the sort of the humanity slowed everything down, got him really like at no point did I feel he finds Otak in the cold, in, in the snow. But I really wanted to feel the snow, hear the wind, you know, the sleet, the rain, the cold really had that moment. Mm-hmm. And I felt I was just a little bit too far away, given the narrative voice that uh, Le Guin's chosen to use. Yeah, that's my one small criticism. I think it's quite small, but. Yeah, I That's mean, I, say. I I gotta say that that I have in in my previ- my most recent reading and in my previous ones as well, being like that is sort of a moment that's breezed over. Um, you know, obviously in the story it represents 
of the beginning of Ged's lowest moments. It's the loss of, you know, his childhood friend in a way. And it is followed up by Ged's, like, deepest, darkest moments where he loses his very sanity after turning into a hawk. So maybe it's simply overshadowed. Um, but yeah, I, I can see how, as an emotional beat, it doesn't quite live up to what it could have been. Is that it? Is it just a hamster dying? Basically, I was going to make another point about the dragon fight. But then I was kind of looking at my notes again. So at one point, Ged goes and... This is a very minor point in the story. This is like a footnote in The Legend of Ged. Mm-hmm. Um, he goes and keeps these dragons away from attacking this small uh, set of islands. And in this, he goes there and there's the, the queen king dragon mm-hmm. and its offspring. And he battles the offspring. He kills five dragons, taking dragon form himself. Mm-hmm. And then he negotiates with the lord dragon. An excellent uh, to not go near interpretation of the riddling with dragon convention it's um but yep but 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 this is key point when i was looking at this Le Guin spends about a paragraph on the dragon fight sure and then about four pages on the negotiations indeed and originally i was going to say this is an opportunity originally i could go oh this is the point where i'm like oh could we not had a bit more a bit more in the moment the sweeping <laughs> the flying can you not imagine it you know this aerial dog fight and then i just went that's not the story no. Le Guin is telling. You know, this is a story that like that. That's not the key point about Ged. That's not what Ged's learning. It's not about can Ged fight dragons. It's can Ged negotiate with the wicked worm. Mm-hmm. The knowing then I actually of went, the dragon's name is far more important to Ged as a wizard than it is to um, than it is him fighting some wormlings. You know, if we reduce it down to the D&D sense, he bought, fought a couple of, like, CR2 wormlings and then talked down the CR25 ancient dragon, you know? Yeah, I do love that. I can, and I can see that. And I love the fact that Ged, he goes into there not sure if he actually has the dragon's true name. Mm-hmm. He guesses based on his history and his learning and his time spent studying and research, and he makes an educated guess. And he literally doesn't just pins his life on that. It's like... Mm-hmm. Hope I've got this right. <laughs> Can you imagine that scene played out differently if the dragon just looked at him like, that's not my really? name? Well, do you reckon no, it would that's, even d- that's my cousin. No. Oh, sorry, sorry. What's your name? Oh, it's it's Dillaban. Damn it! Damn it! Damn it! Fuck! You got me again! <laughs> but, but again, what a lovely scene to kind of show what Ged is. You know, he's negotiating, even with the fearsome dragons that everyone else talks of in just horror. Yeah, no one this, goes near those the, aisles. From the appearance of this dragon into the story, his, the castle tower moved. And Ged goes, oh fuck, that wasn't a tower. That was the dragon's shoulder. Oh my god. This has reminded me of another point, which I don't think we've really touched on yet. Despite the fact that this story is so subversive in many of its themes and its characters... And the overall message, it does still follow quite a Odyssey-esque structure. After we leave Wizard School, it's very okay. much uh, we go to this town. There's a little adventure. We go to the yeah, we go to the dragons. Then we go to the Stone of Terranor, have a little adventure. Then he sets out mm. again, and we get stuck on a, a little uh, reef, um, a little sandbank, and there's like a little interaction. And he moves on again to the next village. Mm-hmm. It's quite. Um, and maybe it's the islands, maybe I'm into much into it, but I like the fact that it does have that kind of, still that hero's journey, 
that makes it recognisable. Yeah, it's sort of episodic in its yeah. own way. You could take, particularly the scene on the sandbank, that could be any... You could literally cut in with that story, have, you know, someone just on a boat, you don't know where he's been or where he's going, and just tell that little story of those two mm-hmm. people there. And what you'd be left with would be a terribly harrowing story that leaves a massive emotional impact and then it's moved on from. Uh, the Wizard of Robinson Crusoe. I'd read that. I'd love to read, read uh, sort of wizards just get stuck on an island bit. I, oh my god, dude, that'd be wonderful. I mean, you'd probably be like, and then he made a boat with magic. And he left. Which is very much what Kid does. Kid does. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. I love a bit later when he's like, so like, he says, you know, he has this, con- this deeply, it's a really interesting bit, it's at the end of a book, right before he has his final confrontation, for someone actually asks him, like, how does magic work? And, you know, rather than front-loading the story with this, by having Ogreon... Ogreon? Yeah, Ogreon. I don't know why I said Ogreon. I think I was thinking of Ogrillion, which is a D&D monster. They have, rather than having Ogreon sit down and explain magic to Ged, um, and he, in fact, Ogreon does exactly the opposite. He refuses to tell Ged anything, much to Ged's frustration. And to, and to clarify, Ogreon is his first master. Before he goes to Whistling School, he's like the local wizard of his village who apprentices him for yep. that first little bit. And then obviously Ged goes on and has his adventure and then returns to him. But yeah, continue. And he leaves Ogreon because he sort of begins his fall to the dark side. He, he reads a book he shouldn't have. He's... He's arrogant, he's not fit to be Ogion's pupil, and uh, he chooses the path more travelled, the, con- the conventional way. But the point being that um, Ogion doesn't tell uh, Ged anything. He expects Ged to learn, and he will insist Ged in his independent learning. The fact that it takes to the very end of the story forced to really get a breakdown of how magic works shows a culmination of Ged's learning. That Ged has gone from being um, a little boy who knows one or two words of magic to this um, to this very wise and intelligent master who's able to debate the nature of magic itself and acts as a teacher. It's also being humble enough to say, I don't think I am a very good teacher. I think you're a better student than I am a teacher. Um, is a wonderful expression, not only of how far we've come as readers in understanding the magic. It's also reflected in Ged's, um, in Ged's change as a person and as a wizard. Is that coming of age? It's, it's all aspects of that coming of age, him coming into the world... And appreciating, you know, what he's good at and what he's not. And the fact that, I think it's really great, in those scenes, there's another young man who's the same age as Ged. Um, and it's really, who who isn't a wizard, who's lived a normal life. And how Ged kind of looks at them and looks at him and just goes, we are so different in what we've had to go through. How you still got those, mm-hmm. like, this young man who still has the laws of childhood. But I think Ged doesn't... It's quite interesting. I don't know quite what emotions there because it's not spelled out for you. So it's a bit of interpretation, but I don't know if he feels, is it meant to be, it's not envy, but he doesn't, he's in no way wanting to be like the carefree bloke, but at the same time, at no way does he, mm-hmm. is he annoyed that this bloke is, gets to be carefree? Equilibrium. Equilibrium is, you a know, major theme. is the core word of this book. 
And I love that. This is too, it is to good omens as um as good omens is to um ineffable. I and I really like that as a message to the reader that it's not about sort of glorifying that your mon oh no no your mundane life is actually really nice because that's also a, a factor of reading the book. You mm-hmm. know you don't want to finish the book and go gosh I wish I could still live in the fantasy. So having this simple message of like it's not good it's not bad we've all just got different paths. It's it's, yeah. it's almost more cathartic, and, you know, like isn't Ged, it? Yeah, exactly. Like the power in the Wizard of Earthsea is is a spiritual power. It's something that anyone could attain if they chose to follow that Tao Te Ching. You know, um, it's it's all about how do we choose to act? How do we choose to try and be moral? It's not you know, it's hardly um like a preaching book about um you must live this way. But it sort of frames Ged's potential fall to the dark side, being possessed by the shadow and becoming a force for evil. That's about, like, what if I became a jerk? What if I was an asshole? <laughs> Why, how do we try and act in a good way? It's about ethics. It is, and it's not... But you must not change one thing. One pebble, one grain of sand, until you know what good and evil will follow on the act. The world is in equilibrium. Uh, the world is in balance, in equilibrium. A wizard's power of changing and summoning can shake the balance of a world. It is dangerous, that power. It must follow knowledge and serve need. Is this book just too mature for fantasy in general? <laughs> Do you know, there's something to be said for the fact that, um, like I said, the rest of fantasy is catching up to Ursula K. Le Guin in the 60s. Because we, I think as a genre, it's kind of let her down. I mean, to be fair, we one of the main praises I heap upon uh, Strange the Dreamer is that it is a pacifist story. You know, it's about the futility of violence itself. Um... There's this this thing in, in I, I was just looking at Goodreads, and a bunch of these quotes aren't even from A Wizard of Earthsea. They're just from Ursula K. Le Guin, like, presumably in the prologue. Because um, she is famously forthright and ardent in conversations about her books and about the fantasy genre as a whole. She's not shy in levying criticism at adaptations or other books. You know, she she famously said that the um the Harry Potter books are needlessly mean and 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 like like un- unkind books. I think it's also good to be clear about this. We're not saying that other books that do explore politically grey areas or have a lot of violence, like they're not unenjoyable and not even good to really to get an insight into how a lot of our world works. I was trying to explain Wizard of Mercy to mm. uh, my mother, actually. She asked me what I was reading. I told her, and she's like, well, I've heard that's the one with dragons. Mm. I'm like, yes, there are dragons in it. True. But then I was trying to explain what the book was like, and I was a little bit like, oh, it's a sphere of bias here, because I've actually just read Narnia. But it's like, it's very fairy tale. It's like it has a moral message, like, say, Narnia has a very clear ethical code it's putting out there. But in many respects... Wizard of Earthsea, I'm like, mm. I was like, yeah, but it's more mature. But not more mature in like a, it's more adult. I mean, it is more adult, but not in like an adult way, <laughs> in like a dark way. It's mature in the sense that mm-hmm. it really takes messages of uh, self-appraisal, mm. pacifism, yes. 
and it doesn't spell them out it just lets the story demonstrate them um yeah and again i say fair talk it's a very whimsical setting but it demonstrates them and it sticks to it we are going to we're going to get to books Actually, that's not true. We've already gone to our book, but we lost the episode. We're going to get to books where things are adult, but they aren't actually adult. They're immature. You know, we will, one day we'll probably have to fucking talk about A Song of Ice and Fire, um, which is a deeply cynical book, but it's not mature. It's deeply immature in many, many ways. Uh, this book is mature without being dark, without being grim. I think that's a lovely comparison to make because I was kind of getting the words around there. This is mature. This isn't necessarily mm-hmm. only for adults. You're right. It's not dark. It's not good. It's not nihilistic. It's sophisticated. It, yeah, it's sophisticated. It's trying to put forth a good message without ever, I feel, undercutting that message. And that's what a lot of... Um... Sorry, I'm going to draw the comparison back to Narnia just because I read it very recently. Sure, sure. It's, it's a good, oh, yeah, be a good person. You know, This is the right way. You've got to treat everyone fairly... It has a very nice messages, but eventually, um, Peter gets out his sword and starts hacking blokes. And the virtual symbol of mm-hmm. goodness in Aslan gets his claws out and starts ripping people apart. And it's, it's brushed over, but it happens. Exactly. That remember that part in the Bible where Jesus ate the Satan? No. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> I mean, it was a part in one draft of the Bible where Jesus murdered a child and then brought him back to life, but. Let's not get into not. that. Um, let's not get into Gnosticism. Um, there were also dragons in the Bible. On. Never mind, moving on. And that's why I like, though. It, it resticks that message of him. And that's why I like the ending of this book, the scene... Oh, God, the ending of this book. I just want to say, in terms of visuals, when they sail off the edge of the map, um, the scene sure. that gets depicted, and the fact that it's only through Ged's eyes, mostly, of the boat getting beached in the waves... And of the dark sand, him walking out mm. to the edge of the world. It was one of those just impure imagery that I remembered when I picked up this novel again from the first read. And like, that was basically what I remembered most clearly was that scene. Like the, the image was crystal clear. Sure. I could see Ged there on the dark sand and the beach, mm. the beach boat on the waves. Like it just kind of gets to the natural stopping point. I love that. I love that. Edge of the map. Um, I'm going to reference Narnia again. Dawn Treader. Um, I lo- but I really do like that. Like this is the edge of our world. Beyond here, you you mm-hmm. you've travelled the physical plane so far. You're literally going to travel over into like the spiritual one. And I don't know why that really resonates mm-hmm. with me. I do like the idea of like over the horizon. It's no. The vast scene is incredibly beautifully written. You know about how like Ged's staff is a as bright as a star as he walks along, but the moment where he's got has to embrace um, the shadow, he has to drop the star, and the staff is extinguished as it falls, and and into um, God, what's, I, I always forget his his Vetch. best friend's name. Is it Vetch? I pronounce it Vetch. Vetch, right? Yes, thank you, Duncan. See, Duncan, uh, Duncan struggles with pronunciation. I struggle with remembering. <laughs> um, yeah, Vetch. Vetch sees the staff go out, and to him, he sees this as the moment Ged falls into shadow. Uh, and um, there's this lovely moment after Ged returns, after having embraced the shadow, after accepting the dark part of himself, realizing that it is not his totality, no longer fearing being conquered by darkness 
when he returns to the boat and he and Vetch are um, preparing to sail back, before Vetch knows whether Ged has returned, he has a hatchet, not to kill Ged, but to smash a hole in the bottom of the boat and sink them both. You know, this act of devotion to Ged to prevent him from becoming this dark villain. And it keeps... That's what I like, because it keeps to that message. It never portrays that message of he's never going to just murder Ged. You know, it's not... No. I know... He loves exactly, it's about It's that self-sacrifice. I know you could sort of flip that either way in his actions. You know, he's effectively killing him. But it's like he can't be... It's not violent against a person. He loves him too much. He cares too much. And he would also be killing himself. Yeah, it'd be that final... He would see it less as an act of murder so that he could survive and makes it more of an act of protecting the world so that if the shadow-possessed Ged couldn't return in any way and wreak havoc among Ursi, which it's a kind of a very dark twist because when you view the shadow then as less of a an outer entity, in the start of the book it's called the Giveth quite a lot, but towards the end of the book it gets referred to more as just the shadow, as it we see it more as just an extension yeah. of Ged. Exactly. And literally it transforms. It becomes more and more like him until it is, until, you know, people are mistaking him for the shadow. And that is, that is perfect because it is, it is Jungian. It, the Gebeth implies that it is something else. Calling it the shadow, what is it a shadow of? And also the fact, the idea of the shadow not having a name, the, the idea which the new Archmage tells, tells Ged is that this pl- thing is from a place where things have no name. And, you know, to, to Ged, this is a, an impossibility. Like, what does it mean for something to have no name? If it has no name, it has no nature, no aspect, no identity, no purpose. To him, this is horrifying. And yet, people keep telling him, I'll tell you its name. The Stone of Terragon, the, the dragon. They all say, I can teach you its name. It's only when Ogian says, all things have a name. That's the first clue Ged gets into understanding that it has acquired his name. Now, how will I learn its name, Master? It knew yours. Now, there's like three things I want to put, bring up there. Number one... That means that the dragon in the stone, literally it's like, do you know its name? And the dragon's just going, yeah, well, I know yours. That's just how it works. Um, There's the second point. Well, yeah, obviously the dragon doesn't know its name. He just knows that. What is it a shadow of? Or it says in the book, um, all candles cast a shadow. You know, darkness doesn't exist by itself. It is created by the light. The second point is I love the scene when... Ged talks to Vetch again and that he has a conversation Vetch is mm-hmm. like so what did the master tell you and Ged goes well the Archmage says it has no name but then my other master says it does and I'm just like for someone who's been in academic circles I'm like, <laughs> I know. yeah I've been there I've had two professors yeah, that's each... literally exactly what he says afterwards being like all wizards oh, argue all <laughs> academics it's like I've been in situations where I've had two academic both masters in their field one literally tell me that something was impossible and then the other literally turn around and go, oh, no, it isn't. No, I've done it in my lab. And you're just like, what? What? Oh, God. You're both experts. Don't, don't, 
Duncan, you're an engineer! Doesn't make sense! You're talking about the fundamental laws of the universe! Mate, I once had test results that I literally got told once that the professor's like, I think you must have made a mistake, because to my understanding, um, it, this isn't possible to produce. And, um, and I... Yeah, you told me about this during a Lancer game. <laughs> I really wanted to bring this up in the podcast. That's literally what I was going to go to after this conversation. Is the time you almost broke the, the third law of thermodynamics. I did, I did. To be fair... I never found my mistake and I hadn't broken any laws of thermodynamics. It was just our understanding of the test setup. And I was criticised for not arguing my point stronger. But when you're sat there and you're getting told by this guy who you have huge respect for, his work and his understanding, tell you that you must have made a mistake. And you're just like, no, I didn't. Those are the results. <laughs> like, I haven't made a mistake. Maybe, <laughs> you've, maybe I've not made my point clear. But that is my test setup, and those are the results I've recorded. I cannot... Duncan, this is the sort of talk that gets you creating a shadow which kills the Archmage. you got to watch yourself. <laughs> Sorry, and my final point beyond that is one that I've forgotten after making that anecdote. So I'm going to leave that off. You were talking about wizards arguing. Wizards arguing. You were talking about getting his shadow. He has to name his shadow, embrace his shadow. That's nice. Oh, yes. And the key point here is that if the shadow possessed Ged, it's not that an external entity then has taken over his body, at least how I read it. it it's just about Ged falling to his dark desperation. You know, mm-hmm. it's about, it's just Ged giving into the, his, his own dark side. Yeah. The, like in Soul. And his fear of the shadow is what gives it strength. You know, when he runs from the shadow, he gives it the strength to follow him. It's when he chases it down that he chases it essentially to exhaustion. And I think this is nice because then it does it keeps agency with Ged. Like if the shadow beat him, it's not that this evil entity overpowered Ged. Oh no, it's that Ged just gave in to his fear, his anger, his anxieties. Yep. And then allowed that to him then do more dark evil magic. We don't see what he would have done, but particularly yep. when we're there with the Stone of Terron. Terranon? Terranon. The Stone of No Terranon. Terragon is a spice. Terragon. Terranon. The Stone of Terragon. Um, and they're like, use oh, the stone, it can fight on. your shadow. Terragon is a spice! <laughs> um, Ged refuses, and I now, having then finished the book, look back on that scene and go, oh, that's not that the shadow would come and possess him. It's more, if he gave him to his powers to use this evil artifact to beat the shadow, that's him giving into his darkness and allowing the shadow to come forth. Right, those are my key points. One other thing I need to ask you, and it might be hard for you to do because you read this quite a while ago, I believe, for the first time. When you read this for the first time, how far in advance did you work out the shadow was called Ged? Oh, damn. Um, it took me a long time. Um, I, 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 don't, I, I don't think I ever sort of explicitly thought to myself, oh, the shadow's name is Ged. Um, that actually did, uh, when he said it, it made me go, oh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but I definitely knew that the shadow was becoming Ged, you know, when, um, when the shadow started to, what, the moment it was like the shadow is walking like a man, I thought to myself, ah, it's turning into Ged. It's, it's like copying him. It's taking parts of him to make itself whole. And one day it will replace Ged. I never really went the, the next step and said, it is Ged. Like, it is a part of Ged. I only picked that up in the wake of a revelation. And I did read this book a long time ago. This was like, 
the fifth book, I got an Audible. So this would be back in like 2016, 17. I felt a little differently, personally. I kind of, I say, I guessed. I did, I didn't know. But from the moment we had his second meeting with his old master, I was like, if I had to put, you know, my bets down, that's the name. I was like, sure. it's going to be good. And I wasn't necessarily disappointed because then I could at least then read that la- latter half of the story with that perspective and already start building up that, oh, it's part of him. You know, that's why it's running, it's chasing. And then and then by the time we got to that, it looks like you. I was like, well, I'm, I'm right. I got this. Uh, but it didn't diminish it. In no way did me getting that twist diminish the message. And I think that's, I hope that's come across in this podcast. Just seeing how it's been presented was enjoyable enough in itself. And that transition from the calling it the Gabeth to calling it his shadow is really nicely, quite subtly done. Um, after that mm-hmm. sort of low point in the story where Ged is at his most vulnerable. So, yeah, I think... Well done, Ursula Gwyn. Very nicely yeah. done. Well done for Ursula Gwyn, not only for writing an excellent story, but also being a fucking total badass. But being amazing, I'm being so like, ahead um, of the curve. Like, I'm reading this story, and the message it's, it's exactly. trying to tell me now, the, the core message of this story is one that I wish more fantasy that I'm reading now was trying to tell me, and a message that I can get behind of just be good, embrace your faults, don't be violent. And it can sound childish to say these things, but it's actually, I personally yeah. feel, in my own beliefs, it's actually quite mature to kind of hold these beliefs up and then show a character struggle to uphold them without outright saying, I am mm-hmm. a pacifist. I do not believe in this. I do not do this. Yeah. I think that's a really nice extra step. Uh, yeah. I don't believe that all stories should be morality plays um, by no means. But I also think that most people fucking need to step up their game in acknowledging the fruitlessness of violence itself. Like, um, it is... It is something which a lot of people simply lack. You know, we live in a world where in 2022, there are still people who think like the UK should spend billions every year on a nuclear weapons program, which we're never going to use so that we can do the greatest deed of evil possible. If we don't have the ability to do this evil deed, we are therefore weak. And it's pathetic. It's a worm-like behaviour. And I fully agree, but I do believe maybe that was a little heavy for the fantasy podcast, but I do fully... No, disagree. I, I, I do agree with the notion. I do like the morality, and like I said, it doesn't have... To, nothing but it has to be a morality tale, and I enjoy reading a diversity of literature. But as a morality tale, I would like to put Wizardversity up there as my personal favourite morality tale for both the morals and the way they're written that I have ever read. And comparing to other, especially mm. books um, targeting towards younger readers, I'm really appreciative that this book exists and that it is accessible for younger yep. readers. Yet, even reading this now as an adult, at no way did I feel like I was reading a children's novel. Um, whereas other books, uh, I'm going to have to reference Narnia again because that's what I'm talking about. I do feel, oh, this is a bit more of a children's book. This is not. This is a very nice uh, collective feel to it. And mm. I, I enjoyed that. It was a brush yeah. of fresh air that I kind of wanted um, during my reading of fantasy literature. And I also want to say that, you know, not merely as a piece, of, a book about ethics, but also a book about, you know, Taoist beliefs. Um, I'm very glad that I chose this book as a follow up to Star Wars. 
um, because Star Wars takes a lot of inspiration. But it's also a good example we can give around, you know, someone using, or you can even use a more loaded term, appropriating um, Eastern culture without really getting it, you know? Like, not without quite catching on to what's really going on, you know? And I said, like, last, uh, in our last episode, about how, like, the, the Jedi taking in children was is an evil deed, a, a sort of indefensible thing, and an example of um, George Lucas sort of going way too hard in trying to add layers of moral grayness. And it only occurred to me, like, during the, week, the weeks that followed, like, well, Buddhist temples, like, actually take in kids, like, from super young ages. Am I calling that an evil deed? Well, I, I wouldn't do so. Um, and it sort of made me feel bad about having said that in the first place, because it goes to show that, you know, through this, this misunderstanding of another culture, this reinterpretation, I had, um, I had come away uncharitably, and uh, it had affected my perception, not merely of a fictional academy of wizard soldiers, but also people's actual beliefs. Talking of perceptions there, Geordie, now you have a, a different perspective on this than I can have at the moment, for you have read the sequel to Wizard of Mercy. I'm interested, oh, do you yeah. want to just give a little bit now how, if at all, you feel that maybe affected your read of Wizard of Mercy, um, having read the sequel? It added greater weight to the section on the island, you know, with the old people. Oh yes, I found that scene, equal parts like very harry i actually found that really quite emotionally engaging although i did leave it a little mm-hmm. bit scratching my head because although I, I got the reference to the tombs of atuan and i went oh is that like set up for the sequel in terms of the story of ged it felt one of the most editable all the other stop-offs i'm like yeah no ged is sure. learning that one i'm not going if you were to edit that out i think you wouldn't miss a beat in ged's character arc that's probably true, and I, I I even thought the same thing whilst whilst reading through this time, being like, um, aside from the connection to the wisdom of Art, uh, the the the, la- uh, to the tombs of Atuan, I was like maze labyrinth. What's going on there? It is a maze and a labyrinth, so um, that that's that's defensible on my part. But um, yeah, it definitely is something that doesn't really add to Ged's emotional journey, and even the connection to the tombs of Atuan. It's very, very minor. It's basically about finding the other half of that ring. So he gets given half a ring, as well as like a little, like a little doll, a little dress, from like a, a little lost princess, and um, characters within the next book are somewhat tied to that ring and to that family. The tomb of Atawan sort of asked a question. What if Ged had been eaten by the shadow? What if he had been taken over? What if he had given himself to darkness? Would there be a way back? So this is a story about, about maintaining, about staying the course. Tombs of Atuan are about redemption. Uh, they're also, really interestingly, a lot more similar to modern YA than I would really have expected of a book written in, like, 1970. It's, um, yeah, 1971. That's right. Um, really surprising how 
similar it is in a lot of ways, like down to the specific like age of the protagonist, um, the interactions he has with other characters, like having um, like one friend who she sort of who acts as sort of means for to bounce ideas off of her, like a strict and sinister elder mentor. And the interaction and the the entrance of a strange young man into her life, which changes everything. Really surprised by um by how much potentially um contemporary YA draws inspiration from the Wizard Whoa. of Earthsea of all things. As you say that, I had a moment there. Where I was like, wait, is he talking about a Wizard of Earthsea or Tins of Atuan? Because a Wizard of Earthsea is it's a young adult story. It's a coming of age, a strange young man, the mm. shadow comes into his life yes i i i cannot rethink of it as ya though because you know as someone who wants to be published i can only think about it in a way that you talk about it to agents and ya as a genre onto itself to me this is a children's book um one which adults can enjoy but it's it it can't exist in my head with the words ya that's fair enough and i definitely would say because I almost don't want to put it a children's book because I would never want to put it off an adult. That's why I liked it when we did refer to it more as like a morality tale. But of the highest calibre that is accessible to all ages. Um, talking about accessibility then, Jordi, I think we've kind of said this already, but who would you recommend this to? Because I know my answer to this. Um, I would recommend it to all fans of fantasy. I think it's good for everybody. However, I'm I would specifically say, you know, if you are someone who really enjoys uh, YA fantasy in the sort of publishing sense, all the conventions that come along with that, I would really recommend the first two books. I, I mean, I haven't read the next couple, so I can't speak to them. Um, but I would recommend those first two books as a little duology. If you put their word counts together, they are shorter than almost any YA book you're going to pick off the shelves. You can buy them in collected editions. So read those two as little short book and its sequel, and you'll have a really interesting and engaging experience, which does in fact stand up with, it surpasses in terms of quality, and is similar in structure and conventions to modern YA. It will be uh, an interesting experience for you, and one I think will be to your benefit. And I say this as a fan of modern YA fantasy books. I think that's a really nice recommendation. It's a bit different to mine. I would be a little bit more open. Well, I said, you know, it's all fantasy. You already said that. To me, though, I would almost target a little bit more. If you're someone who reads a lot of maybe... And you might disagree. I'm sorry if you don't enjoy this. But if you read a lot of like, the more grimdark fantasy, you like the more epic ones, the large, the big tomb stoppers, mm-hmm. uh, you win a time your Game of Thrones, your Mazalans, Book of the Fallen then I actually think this might be a little breath of fresh air. Just take the time. The page count is less. A little antidote. A little panacea for the absent soul. I mean, let's be honest. If you've read something like Will of Time, A Wizard of Mercy is shorter than one of the chapters in the final Wizard, um, <laughs> Will of Time books. So, not strictly speaking fair, but it is still truthful, that statement. So, mm. just take a, take a little respite. If you don't like it, I don't think you'll lose much time with it. Um, but it can yeah. just give you another counterpoint. And also, sometimes reading a little bit of more subversive text can then heighten the elements that you do enjoy in the text you read. Uh, at least that's been yeah. my experience. 
I got a, I got a question actually, Duncan. Yeah. I wanted to bring this up earlier, and I kind of forgot. It's kind of weird that this book doesn't have a lot of women in it, right? Oh, God, you're talking about you know, like, here. ardent feminist uh, Ursula K. Le Guin. I don't think this book passes the Bechdel test. No, it does not. There are three women in it. Uh, one is displayed purely as a, you know, yeah, one is displayed more as a sort of love interest at the Wizard School. One is the evil sorceress, the Doctor. Okay, hang on. Hold on now. Hold on now. Like that, you that that. I mean, that's just straight up wrong. She's not a love interest. She's just a pretty lady. You're absolutely like, right. She never speaks to Sorry. get. You're right. She's even less than that. You're right. No. You're right. You're right. She's had less impact on the plot than I was even implying. Oh, that's right. Then you have the sorceress, seductress type, and then you have the little sister character who I even was like, even mm. that late in the book, like, we're gonna do a little a little love story here, but it's yeah, very it much... kind of gives that vibe. It's a bit. It's a bit strange. It's a bit strange, but then um, I think Ed really does walk away with more of a brotherly perspective. Ultimately, yeah. also there is a part in the book when you know we've met the sorcerer seductress equivalent when he's like thirteen, which is just like an older girl paying attention to you, uh, <laughs> and that's as close as you get to him being the seduction of the dark side. And then there's another similar character who shows up later, and you think, oh, maybe this book has four women in it. Oh no, they're the same character. It's the same person. I can't speak to what, like, Le Guin's intention here was. I can only say maybe she didn't want to bring that element of... No, so this is a very heteronormative viewpoint, then, what I'm about to say. Mm-hmm. Bring that element sure. of, sort of sex into this coming-of-age story. Um, okay. But I don't think that's necessarily something she would have had to have done. To be honest, I can only think, knowing Le Guin's other writing, she's done it, he's done it intentionally... I don't. I can't say why because I can't work out what serves the yeah, plot. Yeah, because it's not like she's not like she's criticizing the patriarchy of the wizards. You know, no. All the the the, when, the wizards we meet are all um are all men. Like any female equivalent is a sorceress or a witch. Um. So does this guess... play into the fact though? Because I've not read the sequel, but I do believe that does have a female protagonist. That's right, it, and the book is almost entirely female characters. So, Aside from Ged, who is in it, every other male character you meet is a eunuch. So like it is a maybe, matriarchal society. So yeah, I can't actually really excuse or explain why Wizard Versi has so many female characters. All I can then say is, Le Guin balances the scales. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's, I guess that's it. Uh, maybe it might have been a canny way of getting published. Maybe she thought that having too many women in power would have been hard for it to get published as a female writer. But then again, A Wizard of Oz came out in, what, like, the 30s? Yeah. And um, that's almost entirely, like, about powerful female characters. I'm really going to have to look up after this podcast and Le Guin's spoken on this, because I can't see... Because on the one hand, and this is very bad, Jordi, on my behalf, if you take mm-hmm. something like The Hobbit, uh, this was almost normalised in my eyes. I wasn't super sure. confused. I was like, oh yeah, cool. This is scared. He went to his old boy wizarding school. Blah, blah, blah. These are standard assumptions that I could make. But then I'm like, yeah, but this is a fantasy world and the Green could have written whatever she liked. So why has she chosen to write it this way? Yeah, I can, I've can. i come to no answer about this and I've been thinking this for years. Um, yeah, maybe she maybe she made some commentary on it in, a, um, in an interview. She was certainly... She didn't believe in um, the death of the author, I don't think. She believed her books belonged to her and um, 
she was very clear about what her intentions were in writing, so perhaps she gave an answer to this, but it has always confused me. Right, I think that's an excellent opportunity then to segue into... People, please send your messages in. Tell us what you thought of Wizard Versi. Why are there so few uh, wizards? Why are there so few female characters and women in this story? Um, Uh, Please send your emails to isthisjustfantasypodcast at gmail.com. Once we've heard from enough of you, we will start then reading them out on the podcast. Um, (laughs) And it doesn't have to just be about Wizard Versi. Obviously, if you have opinions on the books to come and books we've previously done, do send them in. And we will pick out the ones that we feel, I'm not going to lie, the ones that we feel are interesting conversation pieces. Um, (laughs) Basically how it works. Um, Another thing I'd like to add, and, you know, we haven't really talked about this thus far, but this is a really young podcast and we're just really putting ourselves out there and talking to people about sharing the show. So if you are listening to this, it really would be invaluable if you could give us a review, write us a comment, because that is really how podcasts is out there. It's how you get involved in search algorithms. And right now we just, we have no way to, to really make a splash and get out there otherwise. So please, please um, give us five stars. But really love to hear from you all. Well, I know podcasts. Once you've asked people to to send stuff in, it's time to end the episode. So here we go. Let's let's end it. Nothing else to be done. Okay. A Wizard of Earthsea was an excellent book. It subverted so much in terms of looking at violence, uh, good morality tale, wonderful. But it did highlight something to me, Geordie. We both read it before. And then I looked over our previous reads. And other than uh, Strange the Dreamer and its sequel... I'd read every single book that we'd done on this podcast previously that we've got an episode release for. Okay. And one of us has read at least one of every single book that we've ever read. So I was like, well, we, that's not what book club's about. It's not about just sharing our fandoms. It's about new, exciting mm. experiences. So I've got a book here, which I very much just picked off off the shelf. Also, his most recent books have been getting quite a bit of praise, but that, this isn't one of them. This is one of his first releases, if I'm not mistaken. Not one of the good ones. <laughs> this is why. No, this book has gotten praise. It's part of a four-book series, and I left a little reference to it at the very start of this episode, Geordie. And I wonder if you picked it up. Oh no. I know Darth Malice, for we shall be reading Malice by John Gwynn, the first in his. God, we were thought we were doing another Star Wars book. The first in his Faithful <laughs> and the Fallen series. I have not read this book. Malice. I have not read books on, by John Gwynn. I do not know what this will be like. This is very much new waters for me. But I'm holding it here. I've seen the spine of this book, but I know literally nothing about it. Very much the same. Um, I know that his current series has the excellent covers with the big monsters on. And people seem to like him. So I want to see what the hubbub's about. Maybe we'll love him. Maybe we'll hate him. I'm reading the blurb. All right, I guess we'll find out. You're going to have to learn with us whether you're going to have to find a blurb yourself, fair listeners, and figure out whether this is your new favorite book. Maybe you're a big fan of John Gwynn and Malice. I just see a big knife on this front cover. Well, we shall see. See everyone in two weeks. I've been your host, Geordie Bailey. And I've been your other host, Duncan Nickel.